I don't know, Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm gonna be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? I want to say hi to everybody in this room. I want to uh, welcome everybody who's joining us at every campus. And I don't want that word welcome uh, to be a cliche. I was at a gathering earlier this weekend, I think about 100 people at all of our campuses who make it their ministry to welcome anybody that comes to one of our campuses and one of our services. And they gave up several hours to um, just learn how to do that better. And I just came in there to say hi to them. And they made me feel so welcome when I came in. I didn't want to leave that room. So everybody at every campus, all of those of you who pour yourself out to make other people feel at home and welcome and wanted, I'm so glad that you're doing that. And everybody, if you're visiting first time, second time, whatever, I hope you feel deeply welcome here. Now, the question we're looking at this weekend is, uh, what does the Bible have to say about women in particular? Are men and women equal in the eyes of God according to Scripture? This is from a book of letters children wrote to God. Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but please try to be fair. <laughs> now, one of the teachings of Jesus about God is that God is spirit, which means God does not have a body which means God does not have sexual organs, which means God does not have testosterone, God does not have estrogen, God does not shave, which means God transcends gender just as God transcends all ethnicities, which means according to Genesis, quite uniquely in the ancient world, that men do not bear or reflect the image of God any more than women do, which means that you may have to rethink how you think about women or men or about God. And all of that matters because we're in a series called, That's a Great Question, trying to explore, honestly, critical questions about does faith in God, particularly in Jesus, make sense for thinking people in our day? And one of these key questions is whether or not the Bible is sexist. And this is not an abstract theological question. I want us to keep in mind during this message the status and plight of women around our world today. Uh, in 1990, Armatya Sen wrote a very influential essay titled, More Than 100 Million Women Are Missing, about gender imbalance in China, India, and elsewhere. Twenty years later, it was even worse. Mara Vistendahl published Unnatural Selection Choosing Boys Over Girls and noted that Asia alone has an imbalance of 163 million males over females. Once a fetus has been identified as female, it is much more likely to be unwanted, to be aborted or left or exposed or abandoned. Rich families cannot find brides for their sons, so poor families are more likely to sell their daughters, which leads to sex trafficking. Many people have heard about the Me Too movement in our society or about bro culture dynamics that are demeaning to women in supposedly enlightened Silicon Valley. 
Uh, maybe fewer are aware that according to the World Health Organization, one in three women around the world will experience physical or sexual violence. One in three. Or that according to UNESCO, one in four girls in developing countries will not be able to complete even a primary education. So we want to talk about this. Now, maybe you're from a secular background, mostly, and you read the Bible, and there's polygamy in there, and patriarchal systems, and statements about husbands are going to rule over wives, and you wonder, how could a modern, thoughtful person honor such a book? Maybe you're from a real church background that taught that women were supposed to, that it was God's will for women to play a restricted or subservient role, and what we'll talk about in this message might sound kind of new or strange. We believe as a church at Menlo in a thoughtful, informed faith that values the life of the mind. We also believe that the Bible, rightly understood, affirms that an equal, egalitarian community where women and men serve and partner together on the basis of giftedness and not gender hierarchy best reflects God's intent for human flourishing. So that's what we're talking about in this message. Uh, and I want to do that a, a little counterintuitively. Uh, one of the passages most frequently cited as restricting women's roles, kind of a head-scratcher to many folks, is in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And I want to read through that entire passage and then comment on it, and, and along with that, kind of the whole sweep of gender teaching in the Bible and its impact on ancient history, and then think about what that means for you and me and our sons and daughters. So this is in 1 Corinthians 11. I want to warn you, this passage was written 2,000 years ago to a culture very different than ours, and it's possible one or two parts might seem a little obscure. Here's what Paul writes. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved." For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Everything clear so far? <laughs> Go on. Nevertheless, in the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the other churches of God. So, here we go. Uh, a lot, obviously, of what Paul writes is relating to a particular cultural situation long time ago that we clearly don't know all about, but I want to make key observations from this text and the Bible as a whole. First, in this passage, Paul is affirming public ministry for women. 
Paul is expressly saying in verse 5 in this passage, women must pray and prophesy before the congregation. Now, to prophesy in that context meant to deliver God's message to the congregation. It was very much an overlapping term with teaching. Uh, some argue that women should only do this for other women, and some churches observe that. But it's quite clear from the context, especially when Paul is talking about the veil stuff, Paul is endorsing having women speak to audience of both men and women. And this is the most striking teaching of this text. It is a quite radical departure from the past history of Israel. It used to be, before Paul's time, that in order to form a synagogue, ten men had to be present. A woman did not even count as one of those ten. Uh, in Israel, of course, as in all culture, there were a variety of thoughts about gender. But one ancient rabbinic saying actually claimed, Better the Torah should be burned than taught to a woman. Paul is saying, now this is a new day. Now, teaching and learning is to include women as well as men, both speaking and listening. How did this idea come about? Well, I'll give you a little hint. Paul himself was a deeply learned man, valued learning highly. He said of his education, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was arguably the greatest rabbi of his day. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi was actually a technical term. It means to have been chosen to be a disciple of that particular rabbi. It would be a great honor. In our day, it would be like, I got into my stretch school. If you're a Bible person, you may have heard the story of Mary and Martha. In this story, Martha is busy in the kitchen and complains to Jesus that Mary is not helping. Martha, Martha, Jesus replied. By the way, if Jesus says your name twice, you are in trouble. Martha, Martha, Jesus replied. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. What had Mary chosen? Well, we're told in the story. Martha had a sister named Mary who was sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. A lot of times, people will look at this story, and they'll, they'll think that, uh, it's about being real busy like Martha or being relaxed and contemplative like Mary. No first century reader would have understood this story this way. Jesus does not commend Martha, who is doing what women stereotypically do in the kitchen. He commends Mary, who is doing what men stereotypically do. By the way, by the way, there is no record of a rabbi ever choosing a woman to be a disciple until this story, until Jesus. Mary sat at his feet. There's a lot about the way Jesus dealt with, treated women that challenged his culture quite deeply. One time Jesus was confronting people in a way that created great tension. And somebody tried to ease the tension by giving Jesus a pious platitude. And what they said was, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And anybody in the ancient world would applaud that because in the ancient world, a woman's highest calling was to give birth, particularly to a male child. In Sparta, a mom who gave birth to a son got twice the food rations as a mom who gave birth to a daughter. The only women who got their names on tombstones in Sparta were the ones who died in childbirth because that was such a heroic thing to do. So you would expect Jesus, when he hears, blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you, you'd expect him to say, yep, mom is great, hail Mary, full of grace, she got me into the human race. But he doesn't say that at all. He gives a deliberately provocative response. 
He says, in effect, you do not understand yet the revolutionary implications of my gospel for gender roles. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Blessed is the mother who birthed you and nursed you. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. That is disciples. That is, women will no longer be defined by the husbands that they marry or the children that they bear, but by the lives they offer to God. There is an old story about a CEO traveling with his wife, and they stop to get gas, and he notices her talking to the service station attendant there. And later on in the car, he asks her why. Turns out that she knew that service station attendant. Turns out she used to date that service station attendant. And the CEO is feeling pretty smug at this point, and he says, I bet I know what you were thinking. You're thinking you're glad you married me as CEO and not that service station attendant. And she said, no, I was thinking that if I'd married him, he'd be a CEO and you would be a service station attendant. <laughs> and of course, the problem with that story is, how come she can't be the CEO? Or better yet, how come everybody can't just find dignity in their personhood and contribution in their work and not their identity or their value in a spouse or in a title? And this is what Paul is teaching out of the church at Corinth. The ministry of women is to be honored in the church. Uh, you might know, if you've been around the Bible a bit, that uh, the household formed the basic infrastructure of the early church. They did not, for several centuries, have buildings like this one. They didn't have organizations like we think of them. What you may not know is roughly half of the households that Paul mentions in the New Testament are headed by women. That was a staggering percentage in the ancient world. That means that women's influence, leadership in the early church was disproportionately very high. And all of this flowed out of the way that Jesus dealt with, treated, honored women. Just to be clear, if you are a woman and a follower of Jesus, find out however God has gifted you with leadership or administration or teaching or pastoring, or evangelism, or encouraging. Develop that gift. Use that gift. The world needs you. The church of Jesus needs you. Menlo Church needs you, and we will cheer you on. Okay? That's first observation. Second observation, in this text, women and men are equally called and now mutually interdependent. One of the key words in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, is the word head. Uh, in Greek, it's the word kephale, so we'll get like electroencephalogram from that word. Now, in English, when we hear the word head used metaphorically, we will generally think about the boss or the person that's in charge, whoever is the head. So it sounds like Paul is saying that the man, if he's the head, is the boss of the woman. It turns out there's a very large question whether in ancient Greek, that little word kephale, when it was used as a metaphor, was ever used to mean boss or the person in charge, much if at all. If kephale was used as a metaphor, it was much more often used to describe the source of something. A little bit like we'll, we'll talk about the headwaters of a river. And if this is the case, Paul is saying that in Jesus' incarnation, he, Christ, came from God and that Adam was created by Christ, and the woman came, as you might remember, from the body, this side of the man. Now, there's a huge debate about this. If you want to look it up, tons of real long papers and books written about ancient uses of kephale. Um, ultimately, I don't think a lot hinges on this, and here's why. 
Uh, in Ephesians 6.5, for example, Paul says, Slaves, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Now, Paul here is not endorsing the system of slaves and masters. He's simply acknowledging the way things were. We'll actually talk about this a lot more when we get to another critical question about racial justice and was the Bible, is the Bible pro-slavery? But it's altogether possible that Paul is simply acknowledging a cultural truth. They live in a culture where husbands were over wives just as masters were over slaves without saying in either case that here is the social system that is the best expression of God's will for humanity. Sometimes people will argue that because in Genesis it says the man was made first and that woman comes from his side and was made second, it implies the man is superior. He was made first, he comes first. The problem with this is the argument from order can work both ways. You could also say God made the animals first and then he made man and the man was a big improvement on the animals and then God said I'm through warming up and he made Eve like he saved the best for last. Argument for order cuts either way. What the text does say in Genesis is really interesting and quite unique in the ancient world was God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, the notion of a human being made in the image of God was not unique to Israel in the ancient world. But the way that it was taught out in other nations was it was generally one person made in the image of whoever the greatest God was, and that one person, of course, was the king. That was a way for the king to be in power. What was revolutionary in Genesis and Israel, and this would have all kinds of implications through the centuries about the equality of every human being, was that the image of God is universal. And what's really striking here is that the author deliberately says, male and female, he made them in the image of God. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over every seed-bearing plant and so on. The text is very careful to say God makes the man and the woman in his image and gives the man and the woman the mandate to rule and steward his earth. And there is no hint in this text of any division of responsibilities. God doesn't say the man is to have dominion or authority over the woman. He says that they are both to have dominion over the earth. So, women, let there be no doubt about your worth in the eyes of God. You are made in God's image. You are made to exercise dominion, to rule, not to rule over men, not to be ruled by men, but for all of us to steward God's creation in mutual submission and humility. Third observation from this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, women and men are to treat one another with great dignity. Jesus' community ought to be a place where women and men find great respect and honor. Uh, in verse 7, Paul says, woman is the glory or reflection of men. And people will sometimes wonder, well, does that mean that she's lower than him? And it doesn't mean that. Interestingly enough, that same expression is used in the Old Testament, for example, to say that King Saul is the glory of Israel. Now, of course, that didn't diminish Saul. That was a tribute of great honor to Saul. Now, likewise, in verse 8, Paul says, man was not created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. 
And sometimes people think, well, does that mean that the woman has a lower status or function than the man? Now, Paul here is referring back to Genesis chapter 2, where God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, when I was younger, I thought that word help or helper meant like a gopher or a junior assistant, somebody lower down on the org chart. Problem with that idea is that helper is a very common word in the Bible and in the Old Testament, in the majority of times when it's used, it's used to refer to God. For example, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and shield. Same word. Clearly, the idea is not that God's lower on the org chart or something. In fact, the lower on the org chart dynamic comes in a really interesting way. In Genesis, in chapter 3, the man and the woman disobey God, and sin enters into human life. And this devastates their relationship with God, with each other, with creation. And one aspect of that brokenness, that devastation, is pronounced to the woman as part of the curse. God says to her, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, I grew up in the church, and I often heard this taught as if it were God's original intent for human beings. He will rule over you. It was not. It's part of the curse, part of what happened because of the fall, like pain in childbirth and painful toil, uh, thorns and thistles, and laboring by the sweat of your brow, and death itself. The idea that somebody has to be in charge in a relationship is not only not God's plan, it's demeaning and often gets worked out in kind of silly ways. Uh, one pastor I know who believes that the husband should have tie-breaking authority over his wife actually used this illustration of male headship in marriage out of his life. He was thinking about moving somewhere for ministry, and he told his wife that he was thinking about this, and he wanted them to decide together. And she said, oh, no, you're not going to foist that responsibility off on me. You're the head. You make the call. And he said, okay, dear, and he made the call just as she wanted him to do. In other words, they had a conflict of wills, and he obeyed her will, and then he used that as an example of male headship over his wife. See, in the Bible, that idea about power, he will rule over you. In the Bible, power takes over when community breaks down. The core of reality is the Trinitarian fellowship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the Trinity, nobody says, I'm in charge here. The Father and the Son and the Spirit delight in mutual submission and mutual servanthood. And then God makes human beings in His image, and just as the Trinity is three and one, the man and the woman are to be two and yet one. Husbands ruling over wives is a part of the curse that Jesus came to save us from. In fact, it's so interesting when you begin to look at the Bible from this perspective. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing about marriage and sex. And he says, the woman does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. You know, in the ancient world, no surprise there at all. All husbands would be nodding at their wives at this point in the letter. In the ancient world, a woman always belonged to somebody. 
In fact, we still sometimes use the expression of taking someone's hand in marriage. This actually comes from ancient Rome, where a woman would be given in marriage to a man, this is a technical term, either with hand, and that meant that now her husband was legally in charge of her, or without hand, and that meant that her father was still legally in charge of her. But either way, she was in the charge of somebody else. So wife doesn't have authority over her own body, yields it to her husband, no surprise there. All the husbands like that. Paul's next sentence is the one that would have shocked the ancient world. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Are you kidding me? At this point, all the wives explode into applause. And the husbands are thinking, my wife has authority over my body? What's the point of being the husband then? And the point, of course, is that in Christ... In the community of the crucified one, of the cross, we no longer live for ourselves. We have died to all of that. We now live for one another. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, in this passage, Paul has this long discussion about veils and head coverings that will seem quite odd to us. Uh, Corinth was a port city notorious for its expressions of sexuality. And the patron saint of Corinth was the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Temple prostitution was a part of the history of that city. Uh, there's ancient descriptions of it that are uh, quite alarming, and, and this was a widespread thing. Uh, an unveiled head was one of the ways that prostitutes, temple prostitutes, were identified. So most likely, these instructions about veils and head coverings come from Paul's desire that now the Christian community, and in particular Christian worship, be sharply distinguished from the kind of promiscuity, the kind of sexual practices associated with Corinth, and in particular with goddess worship in Corinth. Does not mean that all women in all cultures should always wear head coverings. In fact, Paul here is actually departing from Jewish custom. Normally in Israel, men would wear prayer shawls over their heads when they're praying. In Exodus chapter 39, priests were actually commanded to wear turbans to cover their heads when they prayed. Uh, in this letter to the Corinthians, men were not to wear long hair, but some of you will remember a guy by the name of Samson. What was the sign of Samson's obedience to God? It was long hair. So Paul is writing for a particular culture. Say one last word about this text. Um, sometimes in the Bible there can be translation issues that make it a good idea to check out different translations. And I'll show you one here. Particularly if we read a paraphrase. A paraphrase is where it's not translated from the original language, but the author is just changing the words from uh, an English version. And, and sometimes these versions will be influenced by the point of the person that's writing it. So, uh, this is a very literal translation of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. This is just kind of word-for-word word literal. Because of this, a woman ought to have authority upon the head because of the angels. That's just kind of straight word-for-word word from the Greek text. The clearest sense of it is that the veil is to be an expression of the woman's authority to prophesy. Now, this is from a real version of the Bible called the Living Letters. puts it like this. So a woman should wear a head covering upon her head as a sign that she is under a man's authority, a fact for all the angels to notice and rejoice in. Does that look a little different from the literal rending? So 
It's a good idea sometimes to just check out multiple translations. Paul's point about the veils is not that a woman is under a man's authority. It is that in Jesus' new community, women and men share together the authority of divine image bearers. So, let's be a community that teaches our children how to honor and revere all human beings, regardless of gender. Somebody was telling me about a Sunday school class where some of the boys said, there are no girl heroes in the Bible. Are you kidding me? From Eve, who was the mother of all humanity and chose to continue with the human project even after the pain of the fall, to Sarah, to Rebecca, to Rachel, to Deborah, the warrior leader of Israel, to Esther, who risks her life courageously and is the savior of her people, to Ruth, to Naomi, to Huldah the prophet, to Miriam, to Tamar, to Mary the mother of Jesus, to that little group of women who alone had the courage to stay with Jesus through the crucifixion and became the first witnesses of the resurrection, to Phoebe the deacon who was charged to read and would have been expected to explain the hard parts of the book of Romans, to Priscilla the teacher, to Junia the prophet, to Lydia the businesswoman, anybody who thinks the Bible has no women heroes has just not been reading the Bible. Let's teach our children that God made women and men alike to serve in their giftedness with humility and joy, to live heroically with courage and faith, to love one another with servanthood and respect. Let's be a community where we honor marriage where spouses are devoted to sexual faithfulness and integrity and mutual submission and healthy relationships. Let's be a community where we honor singleness, where we remember that Paul actually commended singleness as an option for women as well as men because he believed that contributing as a disciple was more important than conforming to social norms about getting married. Let's be a community that prays and works for the protection and elevation of women in the home and in education and in health and in the workplace where we live and all around the world. Let's pray and give to our partners that elevate men and women. We support partners that fight trafficking in the Philippines. One young woman whose mom was in prison and her dad was dead worked in a lodge where her manager sold her uh, to give sexual service to men sometimes five times in a single night. International Justice Mission, one of our partners, and local law enforcement rescued her, and she finished her college education. And another one of our partners over there helped her out. And she lives a life of dignity and healing and respect. She serves as a social worker. And gang, I want to tell you, I was in Cebu, Philippines a couple years ago, and I sat across the desk from teenage girls like this, one after another, and they told me stories that I didn't know how to absorb. I will never forget. Let's be part of God's redemptive love for women across the globe. If you're a man, I charge you. You cheer the women in your life on. They are your mom, your sister, your friend, your wife, your daughter. You pray for God to use them to their full potential. There are many studies that say that men are much more likely to interrupt women in meetings or school or business than vice versa. Don't be one of those men. Be the kind that any woman trusts and rely on. If you are a woman, know that you are made and cherished by God. You bear God's image. You carry God's calling. Be courageous. 
Be energized in the use of the gifts God has given you. Be at peace in the knowledge that God's grace accepts you apart from achieving anything our culture tells you you have to do or looking like anything our culture tells you you have to look like. And together, let us show the world that is still broken by gender and sexuality what a community looks like when men and women serve and befriend and challenge and cherish one another in Jesus' name. Let's do that. Amen. You all on board with that one? So let's pray together. I want to invite you to take a moment right now and uh, pray for women around the world. You may know there was a gathering between three and a half and five million women in India just a week or so ago who are dealing with oppression and injury and pain. Young girls all over the world in horrible situations right now while we're gathered here. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing idea that you had to create human beings in your image male and female. Forgive us, God, when we fail to live up to the glory of that idea. I pray for every relationship. I pray for every single person that they would feel honored and respected in this community. I pray for every marriage that it be healthy and strong. I pray for the sex lives of every single person that's part of our community, that they would be filled with integrity and health. I pray, God, that this would be a place where women and men together would absolutely flourish in ministry and relationship. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.